on the edge of the wilderness. A battle is being fought between those with legal rights. We've been listening to all sides of the issue. And those with native rights. Tell them they lost. Yeah, it's just a long battle. We haven't won yet. Now, a solitary warrior is taking the battle deeper into the darkness. I'm on your side. Now, where beauty becomes terror. Someone has to pay. Dreams become nightmares. This is your revenge. And life becomes survival. Say a prayer. Why are you doing this? You know, maybe if a guy thinks he cuts down our trees and somebody will cut him. Don't worry. <laughs> you got yourself the wrong guy here. We have to purify ourselves for what's coming next. What is coming next? Academy Entertainment presents... Stop it. Graham Greene. Stop it. Clear cut. You see? He's out there! The dream will end. Mahe, mahe, hithi, mahe, estonges, oa, legabasji. Welcome to another episode of Skoden Cinema. I am your host, Tyler Randall, and today we're going to be talking about the 1991 film Clear Cut. This film is a Canadian production starring Graham Greene and Floyd Westerman uh, that didn't really see a whole lot of distribution down here in the lower 48. So for our friends up uh, north of the border, our First Nation friends, our First Nation listeners, uh, I'm hopefully that you are aware of this film, or, or I certainly hope so, because this is probably required viewing if you are at all into Native American cinema. This is a must-see. This film is available for free on YouTube, so uh, push pause on this recording, go watch the movie, and then meet me back here in 90 minutes, and we're going to talk uh, all about it. We're also going to discuss the book that it was based on called A Dream Like Mine by M.T. Kelly. We're just going to kind of compare and contrast the storylines um, of the book and the movie and just kind of unpack everything that there is to know about the movie Clear Cut. Before we get to that, though, uh, I just wanted to give a special shout out to a listener, um, Charles Elmore. Uh, if you guys are following us over on the Facebook page or you're following us over on the Instagram page, which is Skoden underscore cinema at Instagram, or just uh, you can type in Skoden Cinema on Facebook, you may have read that I have recently encountered some hardware problems. 
That's right, after years and years of hammering out scripts and uh, schoolwork and Zoom calls, uh, the old computer had finally given out, and I was kind of stuck as to what to do with, with the show. It basically uh, stopped the, the show dead in its tracks. But a listener named Charles Elmore reached out to me, and Charles just so happens to be the ed- or the cinematographer, excuse me, of Jeremy Charles uh, Tochu, and he was listening to the the show, and he started you know kind of becoming a regular listener, and he was hearing that I was having problems, and he graciously graciously donated some equipment to us so that um, we could keep the show rolling. So he he graciously donated an interface controller. He donated some microphones, and um, we're back. And if you can't tell. The vocals here are so crisp and so clear. Uh, I almost like I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But um, wow, what a what a gracious and generous thing to do. And Mr. Elmore, we we really appreciate that. Uh, we cannot thank you enough for um, for what you did for 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 the us and for the show. Just ah, oh, maro maro for that. Thank you. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. We're going to start with the tagline, and the tagline for this movie is actually a spoiler. And uh, there's nothing more irritating to me, and I don't know about you, um, is when you're, you're in a movie, um, or you're going to, you know, you pick up a movie and, and you kind of re- read about it on the back of the DVD box, or Blu ray box, or 4K box, or uh, the taglines, or, or in the trailer that you might see, and they give away you know, all the, the major plot points to the movie. Uh, there's nothing more uh, irritating to me than that. Well, ClearCut uh, decided to, to go one step further and just spoil the whole thing for you with, with the tagline um, blazoned across the top of the box. Uh, so if you haven't seen the film or you're unfamiliar with it, uh, skip ahead because this is a, a major, major spoiler for, for this movie. But the, the tagline is, um, he's not a militant, he's a manito spirit being. And... God, that's such a terrible, what a travesty. Why would they do that with this movie? I, it makes no sense to me. Instead of just treating you like a, a intelligent moviegoer that's, you know, perfectly capable of drawing your own conclusions, they just tell you what exactly is happening in the movie. Uh, God, that's that's terrible. Because throughout this whole film, you know, the character of Arthur played just I mean, un- unbelievably masterfully by by Graham Greene. Um, he's like the perfect anti-hero. Uh, you're not sure whether you're supposed to be cheering for him or or getting angry with him or laughing with him or at him. Uh, it's just a roller coaster ride of emotions, and for them to to just spoil the thing with a single sentence, ah, uh, it's it's just terrible, terrible. But uh, that's the tagline. The movie stars uh, Ron Leia as Peter McGuire, who has no tribal affiliation. And so normally I wouldn't really give so much credit to uh, uh, the Stahutki actors in the movie. But for this one, um, the the two top leads, um, other than Graham Greene, just, I mean, it is, they did a wonderful job. And so I have to give credit where credit is due because without these two gentlemen, um, my goodness, uh, this would not be the same film. But you have Ron Lea as Peter McGuire. He's no tribal affiliation. He is an actor, director. He was actually born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. He attended Montreal's world-renowned National Theatre School of Canada 
and all that classical training really shines in this movie. Um, and actually, he still continues to work to this day. Uh, to be quite honest, this guy has a list of credits a mile long, and I'd say that I three quarters of them are like Canadian productions, and I'm just not really familiar with. Um, but let me highlight some of the ones that um, some of us in the lower 48 might know. Uh, first up is the uh, 1981 horror classic, um, Happy Birthday to Me, which uh, actually might be a deep cut uh, out there for, for, those of the, for those of you not interested in the horror genre. But to, uh, to the gore hounds, um, he played Amelia's Date, and I'll just kind of leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, he was also in the USA Network series The Hitchhiker. Um, he was in uh, Iron Eagle 4, and I bet you didn't even know there was an Iron, uh, Iron Eagle 4, did you? Uh, but yeah, there was, and this guy was in it. Uh, he was also in the Goosebumps television series, uh, the TV movie um, Why I Wore Lipstick to My Mastectomy, which just based solely on that title alone uh, is, I have to see that. And uh, he was also in Saw 4, he was in Punisher Warzone, Smallville, and a slew of Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. The second uh, lead in the movie, Michael Hogan, um, uh, no relation to Hulk, uh, to my disappointment, uh, as Bud Ricketts, and he also has no tribal affiliation. Um, But he was born in uh, northern Ontario, and he trained at the National Theatre School of Canada, where he met his wife, actress Susan Hogan. And she, again, sadly, uh, to my disappointment, again, no relation to Hulk, uh, but they worked together as a package deal. Um, So many of the the credits that you'll see uh, Michael Hogan in, you'll also see his wife Susan Hogan in. But... uh, they worked as a package right up until their children came along. Uh, Hogan, uh, Michael, appeared in countless plays, films, TV series, and radio dramas, and even in opera. Um, he calls his work on this movie his favorite thing that he's ever done, and rightly so, because he he is just awesome in it. Um, his credits include the 1980s Twilight Zone reboot, the classic 90s uh, ice skating film, The Cutting Edge. Guys, remember that one? It was a great film. Um, which, coincidentally, was also directed by uh, Paul Michael Glasser, which I have to say, uh, who plays Starsky uh, in one of my favorite television shows, uh, Starsky and Hutch. Uh, but he also had a pretty memorable role in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, he's been on Smallville and a recent television version of, uh, he's also been on the recent television version of Fargo as Otto Gerhardt. And he even appeared as recently as 2020 in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie with Jim Carrey. And here he plays Bud Ricketts, the, uh, lumber mill, uh, owner or CEO or president and uh, also just the punching bag. <laughs> He's basically a punching bag for, for Arthur, and we'll get more get into that here in just a bit. But uh, yeah, let, now that we've got the, the Hutkeys out of the way, let's talk about them Stajatis. Uh First up, just sort of out of respect for us just losing him a few months ago, is Floyd Red Crow Westerman. Westerman plays uh, Wilf Redwing in the movie, and he is Dakota Sioux. Uh, he was an actor, a singer, a songwriter, an artist, and a Native, Ameri- Native American advocate. He made his big screen debut in Renegades in 1989, which I promise you is coming. And if you haven't seen Renegades, you're in for a real treat. Uh, but he is best remembered, though, for his role as the elder leader Tin Bear in Dances with Wolves in 1990. 
But before he was an actor, he was an accomplished singer-songwriter, and he is, his songs like uh, Custer Died for Your Sins and BIA Blues have helped spread the American Indian movement's message throughout the entire world. Um, he has had featured roles on uh, Northern Exposure, L.A. Law, and many other television series and movies. He has performed with countless legendary musicians, including Willie Nelson, Bonnie Raitt, and Don Henley, uh, the Eagles Suck, by the way, in large benefit concerts for Indian self-determination, human rights, and environmental protection. He also toured the world with Sting, uh, the singer, not the wrestler. What's going on with that? Uh, to help publicize the plight of the rainforest people who were dying uh, along with the rainforest. Uh, he graduated from a reservation high school, uh, served in the Marines for two years, and earned a degree in secondary education from Northern State College in South Dakota. Uh, he was born in the Wapaton, South Dakota Reservation, uh, and as a child, he left the reservation to attend a government boarding school where he had his hair cut and he was not allowed to speak his language. Uh, some of his credits include, uh, well, f fans of this show may remember us talking about him um, as the CB trucker voice that Filbert talks to in Pow Wow Highway. Um, since we've already mentioned Renegades and Northern Exposure in L.A. Law, but he was also uh, the famous Indian shaman in Oliver Stone's The Doors, uh, and if you haven't seen that, uh, where they're kind of wandering around in the desert, um, it was sort of like one of those iconic moments in film uh, in the 90s. He was the Indian shaman, um, and he was in several episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. He was also in the X-Files. Uh, he was just a wonderful man, and just made made, made the creator bless him uh, on his journey. Uh, next up, we got the man himself, uh, the Robert De Niro of Native American cinema, Mr. Graham Greene. And I can't believe that it took us 12 episodes to talk about him. Oh, well, actually, I take that back because he was also in Pow Wow Highway. So uh, I'll edit that out. Greene, who is a uh, First Nations uh, Oneida, uh, plays the mysterious Arthur. And he is obviously, uh, if you haven't heard the name Graham Greene, uh, wow, I don't know what to say because... He's a legend. He is a legend. Uh, but he's probably the most respected First Nations actor of our generation, um, if not of all time. Um, and as, uh, he, you know, as an Anita of the Iroquois Confederacy, he was raised in Hamilton, Ontario, and he worked his way through a series of manual jobs, including an audio technician for rock bands. Uh, before becoming involved with theater in the late 1970s in England and Canada. His official movie debut, though, was in 1989 in the uh, Billy Mills biopic Running Brave, which, uh, if you remember uh, correctly, you know, I fondly talked about what an inspiration that movie was to me as a kid growing up in the very first episode of this program um, called All My Relations. But he continued with small parts in independent and Canadian-American films such as Spirit Bay, Pow Wow Highway, Where the Spirit Lives, and Lost in the Barrens. He rose to international prominence, though, with his Academy Award-nominated performance as Kicking Bird in Dances with Wolves, one of the most popular and acclaimed films of 1990. The role of the Sioux shaman who educates a cavalry officer in tribal culture is in many ways the focus of the film's idealized view of Native American life. But Green's multifaceted performance makes Kicking Bird less a paragon 
than a man who accepts both the tragedy and comedy of existence. And as much of a problem as I have with Dances with Wolves, I do have to say um, it did, for a brief moment, um, kick in the door and allowed many Native American actors through it. And without it, um, who knows where those, uh, those actors and actresses would have been because Green as Kicking Bird was at that time the pinnacle. Um, it was the inspir- It was an inspiration, and continues to be. Let's be honest. It continues to be an inspiration to all of us. Um, but typically, uh, he's so good in that role that he ends up getting typecast, and he is kind of bitter about that today. Um, he he says in an interview, you know, I felt like I was a gimmick in every script that was sent to me. It seemed that every time writers got together to write a script, they got to drag this native issue with them. Well, I'm fed up with being mystical and stoic. I just want to shake the stigma. I just want to play a regular guy. And you have to sympathize with him a little bit, right? I mean, like, as an actor, your job is to act and bring these roles to life. And it seems to me that, you know, all the roles that they wanted to bring him to life were just kind of limited to um, the leather feather uh, type roles and uh, or the stereotypical, uh, st- like he said, stoic or mystical Native American. And I'm sure that's frustrating, you know, when that's all you're given or all you're expected to do, because you have this skill, you have this artistry and you're not allowed to, to or at least you're not felt like you're allowed to express yourself outside of those roles because they don't buy you into those roles. And when you have these writers getting together, you know, until more recently that were just kind of going off old tropes and stereotypes or, or ideals, romanticized ideals of what native Americans were or are, uh, you know, it would get very frustrating. So I completely sympathize with, with green, uh, Today he he rarely goes out of his way to embrace the icon um, excuse me the iconic Indian parts. Um, he prefers character roles that exist apart from his ethnicity or gender, such as New York as the New York cop in Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1995, the beleaguered family man in Bad Money, the philosophical groundskeeper in uh, Lost and Delirious. An actor of uncommon intensity, Graham Greene gives an astonishing performance in this movie, Clear Cut that may forever change how you look at him. In fact, he's gone on record several times um, claiming that this role, um, out of all of his career, this is his, the most favorite thing that he's done of all time. And even more recently, he talked about what a hard time um, and difficult time he had on set, which is something new because there's uh, at the time this movie was in production or being um, pr- uh, promoted, all he could say was what a wonderful experience it was. But in later interviews, he talks about um, all of the uh, roadblocks that he, that he went up against. So I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm sure there's a story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but he has appeared in more than 100 films and TV shows since 1979. Uh, some of the major ones include Last of His Tribe, Thunderheart, Lonesome Dove, The Series, and Maverick. The Education of Little Tree, Exhibit A, Secrets of Forensic Science. He was the host of that. He was in The Green Mile, Gray Owl, Wolf Lake, Skins, Trans America, Luna, Spirit of the Whale, and who could forget the Twilight Saga, New Moon. Continuing our episode celebration of Canadian First Nations actors, uh, we have Tom Jackson. Uh, he plays Tom Starblanket. He's Cree. 
Uh, he's one of Canada's most popular actors and country folk singers. Jackson is also well known as an entrepreneur. He was born uh, to Rose, a Cree mother, and Marshall, an English father, on the One Arrow Reserve in Saskatchewan, Canada. Along with his families, they moved all over Canada from Saskatchewan to Alberta to Winnipeg, uh, where Jackson ended up dropping out of high school and just taking to a life on the streets for about seven years. From these humble beginnings, he rose to become one of Canada's favorite and most honored uh, First Nation performers. Jackson founded the annual Huron Carroll fundraising concert in 1987 in order to support the Salvation Army. His most notable television appearances were on Shining Time Station in 1989 as Billy Two Feathers and North of 60, 1992 as Peter Kennedy. In January 2000, he was named to the Order of Canada, the country's highest civilian award. Jackson was the chancellor of Trent University from 2009 to 2013. His credits include Star Trek Next Gen, Skinwalkers, and... uh, Cold Pursuit with Liam Neeson. So with Jackson, we're going to wrap up our credits list because um, even though there's like a slew of other Native American actors in this film, uh, many of them didn't really go on to do much of anything else or they didn't do anything at all. This is their only film credit. So I don't really feel like we need to spend a lot of time talking about them. But uh, during the rundown uh, of this movie, you are going to hear me say how amazing this film is. It's going to get nauseating to you probably if you want to make a drinking game out of it. Uh, go right ahead. <laughs> uh, not only is this film so well acted and directed, it is masterfully paced and arranged. And I have to give a lot of credit to the screenwriter, Robert Forsyth. Uh, Forsyth based the screenplay on the novel A Dream Like Mine by M.T. Kelly. And to my utter amazement, Forsyth didn't really go on to do much of anything else other than like a couple of teleplays, TV movies, and I think he only did like maybe two other screenplays. Uh, you know, not that that's a terrible thing, um, but just meaning that, you know, this is such a, an amazing script that it could be taught at universities because it's just that good. And I'm going to talk more about it um, as, as we move forward so you'll kind of understand what I mean, but let me say... Um, without a shadow of a doubt, this is an absolute gem of a script. It's based on the novel A Dream Like Mine by M.T. Kelly, who, again, to my knowledge and research, has no tribal affiliation. Um, Kelly is a Canadian novelist, poet, and playwright. His first novel, I Do Remember the Fall, in 1977, was nominated for the Books in Canada First Novel Award. Uh, This book was followed by two other novels, uh, The More Loving One and The Ruined Season, but it was his third novel, A Dream Like Mine, in 1987, uh, that won the Governor General's Award for Fiction. He recalls for the film, I was a consultant um, with the director on ClearCut, not only for script work, but also took him to see uh, petroglyphs and whitewater canoeing to uh, to convince him of the depth and terror of Canadians' prehistory. And yeah, absolutely, those things are all in this film. And so thankful that M.T. Kelly was there. Uh, So apparently, he he was a consultant, and it certainly shows. And I seriously emailed him. I really did, uh, directly through his webpage. And I asked, you know, kind of about his work on this film and if he had any kind of fond memories. And he hasn't replied 
yet. So if he does, I'll certainly let you know. Meanwhile, the film's director, uh, Rizard Bugajki, is the same. Um, he never really went on to do anything of real substance for reasons I'll talk about here in a minute. But uh, truth be told, he doesn't have to. He's already made his mark. This guy really is. A, he, he only has like maybe five films, but he is a Polish filmmaking legend. Um, and it's quite a remarkable story. Uh, he was born in Warsaw in 1943, like two weeks before the German invasion. Um, he was only a week old when, along with his mother and father, he was rounded up by, the, by a German firing squad, and he was placed on a line ready for execution. Incredibly, just seconds before the triggers were squeezed, a huge bomb fell, and the wall where they were all lined up um, crumbled, and it ended up landing on and killing the entire firing squad. Uh, that's how they survived. You know, that, that, that accident or that bomb um, allowed them to escape. And according to Bugashki, um, it wasn't until about his third year in college um, where he accidentally went to a movie theater to watch a, a uh, Eight and a Half by Fellini. And uh, he said about after 15 minutes, he knew that he wanted to become a film director. So to the horror of his mother, he immediately quit philosophy and applied for film school. And he was rejected at first, but finally admitted in 1969, and that's how it all started for him. He graduated uh, from the Leon Schiller National Higher F uh, School of Film, Television, and Theater in uh, Lotz, Central Poland, in 1973. In 1976, he joined the X-Film Unit, managed by uh, Andrzej Wajda, an Academy Award-winning Polish film director, where he made the films A Woman and A Woman in Classes. And I guess why I wore lipstick to my mastectomy was just too taboo for Polish filmgoers. Success with the X-Film unit, though, wouldn't last long, however. He was sort of force-hired by the Polish communist regime uh, to shoot a propaganda film uh, in the early 1980s during the rise of Solidarity in Poland, it was a short-lived movement of anti-bureaucracy and civil resistance. Instead, he took the finances that they had given him to make the propaganda film and ended up shooting right under their noses an anti-communist film called Ant uh, Interrogation. It is a story concerning an unjust the unjust imprisonment of a pro-Soviet regime of the early 1950s. The protagonist is a politically apathetic, fun-loving young cabaret singer named Tonya, who was arrested without explanation and sent to, to a political prison for interrogation. The prison officials used torture and humiliation to force her to confess to crimes that she did not commit and implicate people that she does not know. In making this film, I wanted to look at the victims of communism, the ordinary people, the people who are innocent and maybe not even interested in politics, Bugashki recalls, my heroine goes from a completely passive, politically unaware person to someone who starts to defend her own self and define her own moral code for the very first time. Before Bugashki was able to complete the film, however, martial law was imposed in Poland. Beginning in early 1982, this stringent period was intended to crush political opposition by severely restricting civilian life. For example, uh... People weren't even allowed to be outside of their homes past dinner time. So the fact that this film was not only completed, 
but edited makes this all the more impressive. When interrogation was finally completed and reviewed by the censorship board hearing, it was denounced as anti-communist. Uh, it was banned and locked in a vault. Bugashki was forbidden from making any more films in Poland, and eventually a bounty was placed on his head, forcing him to immigrate to Canada with his wife in 1985, where he immediately began directing episodes of a popular Canadian television series. Bugashki recalls, uh, I knew the ban was going to happen even while I was shooting the movie, so I serendipitously made copies of the film, a 35mm print, and I hid it, Bugashki says. Later, I just made more copies and dubbed it onto uh, VHS, and it was distributed by these underground Samzadot publisher, and it became enormously successful. The quality of these VHS tapes, though, were crude, and people were often watching copies of copies of copies. Uh, despite the terrible picture and sound, it was a profound act of resistance just to see the film. It was usually screened in churches or in people's private homes. And according to Bugashki, the film uncovered the layers of lies and showed communism um, and showed people how communism really worked. I mean, can you imagine making a film so thought-provoking, so eye-opening that a bounty is placed on your head? And then you have to flee the country that you lived in and loved in order to protect your life. And you wind up like 2,000 miles away just directing episodes of The Big Bang Theory. It's just an incredible story, but it is one that um, only the director of Clear Cut can tell because you need that you need that guy to tell this story to be an impartial witness, an impartial viewer to how Native Americans were treated. Um, it's just... I mean, he's the perfect director for this movie. Like Interrogation, Clear Cut has several scenes that seem to sort of share this kind of odd fascination with physical and psychological torture and how people kind of respond to it. Bugashki says, you know, if I actually look back at my life, I can clearly see what influenced me more than anything. It was my constant struggle with communism. The system was omnipresent, and it stuck like glue to our everyday lives. It was with us at school, at work, at the theater and cinemas. So I was in a constant struggle with that invisible mechanism that controlled our lives. Perhaps because my nature is the nature of a man who wants to be free at any cost. Physical torture is less interesting to me than psychological torture. It manipulates people by instrumentalizing their fears and weaknesses Skillful interrogators can easily detect such vulnerable points in every human being. I have been through such an interrogation, and paradoxically, the whole process made me understand myself better. This uh, clear cut was Bugashki's first North American film, and it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 10th, 1991. And then it went on to have an extremely <laughs> limited DVD and VHS release. It is believed that only two prints of this film exist today. And while the film never saw mainstream success here in North America, it has developed a cult following in Germany. One possible reason that ClearCut failed to make such a lasting impact was its close proximity to the Oka crisis. The Oka Crisis was a widely covered land dispute between First Nations and the town of Oka, Quebec, that resulted in many violent clashes between indigenous protesters and the Quebec police.
another possible reason that this film was never picked up um, is because it was released um, shortly after the Mohawk and Lubicon. Uh, Lubicons had particularly violent altercations with the Canadian government. There is an unmistakable sense of reality between the two groups in this film. Um, it was just a little too real, too close for comfort, so to speak. Uh, by the uh, by, October by the end of October 1990, a logging company commenced um, logging operations in unceded Lubicon lands. And even though the Lubicon people made it very clear that they would be fighting to protect their lands, after much legal wrangling and still far from settled, uh, Buchanan's sister company Brewster Construction was caught illegally bulldozing logging roads on Lubicon land. And on November 8th, 1990, Lubicon chief uh, released a statement. After years of unsuccessfully trying to protect Lubicon land rights through the Canadian courts and around the negotiation table, during which time an authorized uh, resource exploitation activity in our unceded traditional territory has continued at an ever-accelerating rate, doing great and growing damage to our traditional society and way of life. The Lubicon people have regretfully concluded that we have no choice but to once again enforce our legitimate jurisdiction over our unceded Lubicon traditional territory and to defend ourselves and our lands as best we can. So between the Oka crisis in Quebec and the Lubicon crisis, Authorities feared that this film could possibly spur more vicious and violent protests. Clearcut, somewhat ambiguous and brutal portrayal of land claim disputes, along with its extreme violence targeted towards police and white business owners, could also have contributed to its lack of success and promotion. It sort of just quietly faded away a few weeks after it was released. To this day, Clearcut remains an important part of the discussion surrounding the portrayal of indigenous people in contemporary film. In the book Hollywood's Indian, the portrayal of Native Americans in film, it labels Clearcut a sympathetic portrayal of modern indigenous people in which, quote, uh, Native actors get to act out their colonial-induced angst and anger. The Canadian horror film publication Terror of the Soul comments uh, on the character of Arthur being portrayed as a spiritual being and how he is a symbolic representation of the response to colonial attitudes of racism and inequality. So let's jump now to the box description. This is from the VHS release, which is the only copy that I currently have. Uh, I think I've mentioned several times um, a company called Severn Films has remastered this and released this as part of its folk horror box set coming out. Um, I've pre-ordered that thing, so I'm so hopefully being sent out. I've seen some of my friends that have also pre-ordered it, um, post about it on Facebook, so I can't wait to get mine. Um, but this this box description comes from the VHS copy that I have. It says, A story of rage, a harrowing action adventure set in the wilderness in which one man tortures another as punishment for his crimes against the environment. Graham Green dances with wolves in Thunderheart is Arthur, an imposing local tribesman who is outraged by the destruction of his land and the lumber mill owned by Bud Ricketts, played by Michael Hogan. In this into this wilderness steps Peter McGuire, uh, Ron Lea, a city lawyer trying to protect the native land uh, through the courts until he meets Arthur. Enraged at the sight of his people's land being ruined, 
Arthur takes the law into his own hands, kidnapping Peter and Bud Ricketts and forcing them both uh, into an unrelenting northern trek. This terrifying journey uh, compels Peter to confront the naive liberalism, his naive liberalism, and cause Arthur to become the ultimate victim in this deliverance-type story. And deliverance-type story, you know, that's one thing that I kept reading over and over during my research of this film, is how many times it was compared to the film Deliverance. Uh, this comparison, I guess, is, is to me, completely unfounded. Um, you know, while the two films certainly, you know, have similar themes, such as, like, um, you know, uh, uh, the safe assimilation of, you know, quote, others, uh, being country folk versus city folk in Deliverance, and kind of like Indians versus colonialism uh, in this in clear cut, or the fact that both could kind of be seen, I guess, as adventure films uh, fused with horror or psychological thrillers. Um, they clearly have different messages. <laughs> you know, t- to me, Deliverance is all about, um, you know, kind of being where you don't belong um, or, you know, being in a place where you're not wanted, I guess. And Clear Cut has a similar element, I guess, I suppose. But this story, to me, is more about how the destruction of the land and environment threatens a way of life or the existence of people uh, and their way of life. So uh, giving, you know, it's, it's sort of about giving a true harrowing, angry voice to a people who have been told many times just to shut, sit down, shut up, and just get over it. Well, that's what this film is all about. It's what happens when, you know, Native people are fed up and we're not just going to sit down and get over it any longer. It's about all of those hundreds of years of anger that's built up and now it's time to um, kind of tell you why we're angry and what we're going to do about it. So the film opens perfectly with this eerie underwater atmospheric shot. And within like 10 seconds, you already kind of know that it's setting up something horrific. um, Because beneath the water, you kind of catch glimpses of like um, deer skulls and antlers, um, uprooted trees, animal bones, and just... Other kind of various images uh, floating by within the murky water. And the soundtrack here is really tense. It's sort of like building up this um, very like explosive, explosive moment um, because it's like a mix of like strange howling wind. There's dog barks. There's like faint wolf cries. And it's just one of those moments that's, you know, albeit brief, but really sticks in your head. And it certainly sets up the theme of like this dual world, you know, uh, the sense of this latent mysticism and brutality uh, and mystery that's, you know, uh, lurks just beneath the surface of the water versus the beautiful facade that lies just above it. And I I love the symbolism here, whether it was intended or not. Um, I have to think that it was just given, you know, uh, Bugashki's history. But uh, the camera kind of pans above the surface to catch a little two-seater seaplane flying overhead. Uh, And the camera movement here, again, is so keen because it literally kind of tracks through the water. 
It moves upwards, it breaks the surface, and then tilts up towards the sky. Oh my god, just go watch that. I mean, even if just for that opening scene, go watch that part. Um, And then what we get is these uh, several beautiful aerial shots of the lush, wooded Canadian landscape. And then we cut to the cockpit of the plane. The pilot informs the passenger to, you know, hold on to your cookies because where we're, uh, we're, we're kind of flying over where loggers have clear cut the area. And he informs him that it makes the air unstable due to the sudden rise of temperature. So this one little throwaway line certainly says a whole hell of a lot about the themes explored in this film. Uh, the acreage clearing of trees has caused significant environmental changes to a culture who relies on it. And we're only like two minutes in. And uh, this film is, is certainly rolling. Um, you know, we get another aerial view of the landscape being discussed. And it's just now completely littered with downed, stripped, debarked, ravaged trees like hundreds of them, whereas moments before we saw this lush, green, wooded landscapes. And the passenger, um, who we'll soon learn, is Peter McGuire. Um, He compares the look of the land to the surface of the moon, and the pilot replies that it looks like money. It looks like money to me. And so again, we're already setting up this clash of viewpoints Uh, You know, you have this white environmental lawyer from Toronto witnessing the destruction of land and a way of life. And you have kind of like the white common MAGA men, you know, seeing it as opportunity and progress. And again, I'm going to start bragging now about the genius of the script, because um, in the novel, McGuire is not a lawyer, he's a journalist, and he's doing a story on traditional native medicinal practices, and he sort of stumbles upon the goings-on in the film. Um, But here, he's an attorney, which makes him directly knowledgeable and aware and linked directly to the problem. Looks like the moon on a bad day. Looks like money to me. So the movie gets rolling pretty quick here as the plane lands smoothly on the surface of the water and the two men jump out and kind of start unloading um, all the baggage. They're wading into the water, kind of making their way towards the bank when the pilot kind of, kind of you know, uh, uh, condescendingly uh, wishes uh, Peter uh, good luck and uh, farewell. And then he disappears into the blue sky, leaving him basically all alone to figure it out. So Peter kind of starts trekking his way through the woods, and he's stumbling, and he's falling, and he's slipping around. He's, like, getting spanked in the face with branches, and he's, like, swatting at bugs as he's kind of making his way deeper into the forest. And I love how they already set this up from the very beginning of the movie, how Peter is sort of like this stranger in a strange land. Um, He's definitely... um, dressed like a lawyer he's um, in an element that he is unfamiliar with and i just love the fact that like i said that they just they've already setting this up and it's already kind of the seeds been planted um you know within the first few minutes of the film but uh as he kind of surfaces from the tree line he's met by a 10 year old child um casually smoking a cigarette and um, she's been observing him the entire time kind of sitting on a rock from overhead and when he sees her, Peter's obviously startled at first, and he kind of asks, um, you know, asks the child if she knows who he is, and clearly she does. 
sunlight. Who are you? Polly. Never go into the woods without matches. Thank you, Polly. I'll remember that. Am I in the right place? Do you know who I am? Kenota Magewe Nene. You're the man who talks to us. Follow me. Ah, never go into the woods without matches. That that little line is going to come up a little bit later in the film. But uh, taking her direction like a real champ, he kind of starts following her back into the dense forest in the exact same direction from where he just came from. And as they kind of start walking closer to their destination, uh, the soundtrack switches uh, from uh, switches over from like nature sounds um, to sounds of like commotion and sounds of like heavy machinery moving earth and stone. And there's like this megaphone that you can kind of faintly hear, go home people, go home. And there's like this indistinct shouting and yelling. And as Polly and Peter finally kind of break through the tree line, they are met with a scene of absolute chaos. And it is one of those uh, scenes that's kind of, um, uh, it's, it's a sight that's not, you know, too often not seen in, a, in this day and age um, because it's just like ripped completely out of like the Dakota pipeline protests. Uh, it was very realistic, uh, t- to be quite honest, and um, especially for a film that was made, you know, uh, 30, 30 years prior. But um, you have like this, these images of like these natives being held back violently by the police in riot gear. Um, and then behind the little blue line there, um, you know, there, there's these bulldozers and they're moving hundreds of downed trees. And you have elders being beaten by batons. And there's like a news crew there that's uh, really there to exploit the entire, you know, every minute of the story. There's men standing by with like these massive chainsaws and there's like a drum circle and there's, you know, these native uh, drummers and they're singing and they're praying. And then all of a sudden, um, Peter kind of something catches his eye and he's seeing a policeman with a baton and he's just like walloping this man named Eugene in the head just like over and over and over. And so Peter kind of quickly uh, goes over to investigate what's going on. What does this mean for your people? What's next? What's next? You okay, Eugene? You fuck. Where's Wilf? You fucking white-ass cars did this, you fucking white mouth! You lying mouth! Get out Thanks, pal. You puke! So as you can hear, there's like a news crew there filming the entire episode. And while Peter, I guess he's trying to defuse the situation, but uh, they're like aggressively and intrudingly like shoving the camera right in Eugene's face as he's being hit on top of the head. And uh, then when Peter steps into the, to the frame, the focus switches from Eugene to Peter. Um, you know, he's actually looking for a man named Wilf and he obviously didn't get the answer that he wanted from Eugene. So he heads up the hill and the news crew follows him and they're like tailing his every move. And they just immediately go right into like asking him his you know questions about his thoughts on the court's decision and does he plan to appeal it. And here's the first mention of how brilliant the script is because it respects the audience enough to let them draw their own conclusions as 
as to what's going on. We don't need this long, drawn-out explanation of, you know, like what happened. Um, because clearly, as an audience, you can see it uh, right there on screen. And you get just enough information, just a few sentences, to just put all the pieces together. So I just, man, again, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But for the purpose of the podcast, um, and because you can't really tell what's going on, um, as in the real events, the logging company um, was clearing the land, and all legal efforts had failed to stop them. So uh, that's sort of what's going on, and that's the setup to the story. And then Peter is sort of continuing this desperate hunt for Wilf. But instead, he stumbles into a man named Tom Starblanket, played by Tom Jackson, um, who just might have the answer. But it's pretty obvious from the get-go that Peter um, is not the most popular guy right now on tribal land. You said we'd win. I said that we had a chance. Do you mind? Tom, I said we had a chance. You still get paid when you lose? Oh, God, that cut deep. Oof, that was a deep one. All right, so the brilliance of the script is setting everything up, obviously. You have this big, white uh, city lawyer who went, uh, went kind of went to bat for the, for the natives, uh, sort of against this big corporate lumber slash paper mill. And it seems that Peter all but promised victory, but ended up losing. So now he's kind of back to kind of uh, with smeg on his face and he's trying to make amends and give them, you know, hope and just kind of see what else that he can do. Um, and it's also sort of suggested here that Peter's motives are generated by like white guilt and that, um, you know, he sees himself as the liberal savior uh, to these, you know, innocent childlike people down the river. So um, he feels that, you know, like he and he alone is the only thing that's going to save them. And let me add the idea or the trope of this lone white savior, uh, you know, coming to to rescue these people from themselves is to me one of the most ludicrous, preposterous and definitely one of the most frustrating aspects of, of narrative film that has ever existed, at least in my opinion. And no matter when I see it played out, whether it's films like Dances with Wolves or Running Brave or uh, Dangerous Minds or Wind Talkers or Freedom Riders or The Blind Side or, my God, uh, even Thunderheart. I mean, they wouldn't even let Val Kilmer's character be more than, than a quarter uh, native um, from uh, – my gosh, it goes on and on and on. Even Hidden Figures, which is, you know, which recently got a lot of acclaim, you know, about the, the three, you know, black uh, female scientists that work for NASA. But still, at the end of the movie, it still kind of centers back to, to, to the white people uh, that, that were also in NASA. So just this whole, um, you know, idea that people of color can't do anything for themselves. Uh, that we need saving or that we need to have our moral compass adjusted to fit what the kind of to kind of fit the colonized mindset is just absolutely uh, uh, 
just disgusting. Uh, and again, frustrating for, for people of color when we see it played out over and over and over. And that's, again, I have to give a, a lot of credit here to um, the, the, the screenwriter, number one, uh, Forsyth, and then the, the M.T. Kelly, who wrote the novel, and then even the uh, brilliance of Bugaski to Bugaski, excuse me, to to recognize that and see that you know that the native people uh, they don't they don't need Peter. He's sort of like the face of what's really getting ready to happen. He's sort of like a pawn in the whole thing that we know that we don't we can't really depend on this guy any longer. And historically, that has been played out, you know, um, whether it's residential schools, whether it's, you know, boarding schools, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, dealings with, with treaties with, with the U S government, whether it's, you know, land rights, whether it's disputes over tribal sovereign, sovereignty, it's just like, uh, you know, we don't, need the, the the fat cat lawyers uh, representing us any longer because at the end of the day it's not really about what our needs it, it's how what their needs are you know or, or how you know how is it going to benefit them so the brilliance so like I said of this film is that it's unlike any other thing that you've ever seen before because even though you think that's what's going to happen it flips it and it doesn't happen yet but it's coming. Okay, so back to the movie here. Um, Tom, Peter, and Polly are all kind of like perched on this hill, um, sadly kind of watching all of the chaos below. Uh, I mean, we're getting glimpses of uh, natives being beaten. They're, they're cuffed. They're being, you know, strong-armed and kind of like taken away. There's like chainsaws cutting down trees. Um, there's fights. There's men with hard hats just kind of standing around, like, you know, again, kind of watching everything that's going on. But it's at this moment that we get the very first glimpse of the man who will become the film's true anti-hero, Arthur. Um, Graham Greene um, steps in just kind of amongst all the bedlam. And um, in fact, you don't even really uh, see his face, actually. Um, in the foreground, he kind of uh, he's like this massive figure and he's clad in like this bla uh, plain black T-shirt and he's just got, you know, blue jeans on. And like I said, we don't even see his face. The only thing that's kind of um, uh, visible on screen is kind of like a side profile from like his neck down. Um, and you see this silver pendant necklace kind of uh, around his neck. And uh, when he steps into the frame there, uh, both Tom and Peter stop uh, watching what's going on down below. And they look directly at uh, uh, Arthur. So uh, as soon as he steps in, though, he quickly, you know, just as quickly steps out of the frame, um, revealing an elder man behind him um, being pushed to the ground by a policeman. Um, Peter recognizes the, the man and quickly runs over to uh, kind of address the situation. Where are you going, Chief? Not much of a warrior, are you? Hey! I represent these people. My name is Peter McGuire. I'm a lawyer from Toronto, and Wolf Red Wing is a good friend of mine. Then tell them to back off. <laughs> tell them they lost. I'll have your badge. Hello, white man. 
Hello, Indian. How are you? I'm okay. I'm sorry, Wilf. I didn't expect this. I have to go back. I have to appeal immediately. We'll beat him. Just make sure you gather your people together so there's no confrontation. No violence. Don't worry, we'll be all right. So the man that Peter runs over to help um, is Wilf Redwing, played brilliantly by uh, Floyd Red Crow Westerman. Um, and again, the dialogue here tells the audience everything that it needs to. Uh, and keep in mind, uh, they also continue to kind of plant those uh, subliminal little foreshadowing seeds, uh, story seeds here. Uh, because Peter, as you heard him towards the very end of that clip, he doesn't want any kind of physical confrontation. You know, he, he kind of wants to solve problems the old white man way, I guess. Um, and even greets uh, Wolf like that. Like, uh, well, Wolf kind of greets him like, hello, Indian, or hello, white man. He's like, hello, Indian. Um Kind of given the idea that these two have some type of rapport um, or they, they knew each other uh, or were comfortable enough with each other that they could do that. So, um, you know, Peter, he, he wants to do things what, what he believes is the right way, which is through the courts. And if you listen to the clip, um, Wilf never really agrees with that. Um, the only thing that he really says is, uh, don't worry, we'll be all right. Uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, like we're going to win this one way or another, you know, this is kind of what I see. Wilf is like with or without you, we're, we're going to win this. Um, so, uh, with no way back to civilization at this point, um, Peter kind of turns to the news crew that had been following him the entire time, um, and asks them for help. He, uh, needs a ride to the airport and kind of seizing the opportunity for an inside scoop, the news reporter graciously accepts the offer. And then, oh, I also forgot to mention that the whole time that we've seen Peter, he's carrying around this uh, briefcase, this like leather briefcase. And so as he turns to go with the news crew, he realizes that he's kind of left it laying around somewhere uh, and just kind of in the, in the chaos and madness. So this is important uh, because it does kind of turn up a little bit later in the film. Now, there's also just a little bit of a discrepancy between Wilf and Peter's character in the book versus their characters in the movie. So like I had mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, Peter's character in the book is not a lawyer. Instead, he's a newspaper reporter. And how that story unfolds is that he has been assigned to do a fluff piece, basically, just this kind of um, filler article. I think it even mentions it, you know, being on like a, a page, you know, 3A or something like that in the book um, on Native American traditional medicinal practices. And Wilf has agreed to kind of take him and show him kind of how uh, natives have been um, healing their people for hundreds of years. And um, when the reporter shows up, when Peter shows up, you know, Wilf kind of seizes that opportunity to uh, tell him about what he believes is the bigger problem, um, which is the clearing of the land um, uh, of the uh, Ojibwe and uh, the Cree land there in Canada. So, uh, again, there's just a little bit of a discrepancy there, but I do I still feel that it's important for you guys to know that because, um, yeah, it just it's a little different than the book. Okay, so now we find ourselves in the uh, cab of the you know, Jeep Grand Cherokee with the lady newscaster and Peter, and they're driving to what he thinks is the airport. 
And again, the brilliant expository dialogue here um, sets everything up. What do you want to know? Well, let's see now. Just lost a native rights case that's been front section news for the last month. How do you feel? A little sick to your stomach? The complaint was based on the impact of a road, not native rights. Ah. Uh, judge didn't care that the road will only be used to cut Indian trees. Any further comments, Mr. McGuire? Nice road. Mr. McGuire? We intend to appeal. You'll drive me to the airport. Thank you very much. We'll be in Toronto tonight, and by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll be in conference on the application. hip hip hooray. What? I said you're not going to win, so why bother to appeal? Is that what you said? Well, I don't know that we're not going to win. Do you see what I mean? There are so few scripts today that can pull this level of genius off correctly. Um, the one that kind of comes to the top of my head, comes off right off the top of my head, is this the scene in Terminator. Um, that's like a perfect example. It's the car chase scene, you know, where, where Kyle Reese is kind of laying out the entire plot of the movie for us. Um, this this is like Terminator level screenwriting 101. You don't need this long, drawn-out monologue at one point to, you know, for the audience to uh, to get what's what's happening in the movie. You know, you basically have um, the entire debacle is kind of based on this paper mill clearing hundreds of acres of land for a new road, which basically serves us twofold. Um, one, the road will kind of enable better access to the mill, and then two. In order to build the road, they clear-cut the land, and then they use the trees to mash into pulp, which will eventually be turned to paper. So instead of bombarding the audience with like all of this information at once, it's doled out perfectly in these little moments that allow you to breathe, and then um, these little progressive pacing points of action. You know, uh, basically you get like a little info here, and then you get a scene of action there. And then it lets the audience process what it has seen. And then you get a little bit more character introduction, a little bit more character development here. And then that character provides you with a little bit more information. So basically, every time a character appears on screen, you get just one more little piece to the story. Do you see? Do you see how that works? I mean, Ghost won the 1991 screenwriting Oscar. Forget Ghost. Clear Cut should have clearly won that. Oh, wait, 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 though. This was adapted from a book, so let me see. Hang on just a second. What? Let me look it up. Hang on just a second. Sorry. What one adapted screenplay in 1991? Hang on just a second. Uh, dance. Oh, wait a minute. Dan- dances with wolves. Sorry. Well, instead of going directly to the airport, the female reporter, uh, hey, that's, that's how it's listed on her IMDb. That's not me. So I'm just telling you, like, that's what her character is called, um, drives Peter to the paper mill instead. Um, it seems like she's got some sort of like underlying trick up her sleeve. 
Um, so as they kind of pull up, we see this uh, conglomerate of media outlets surrounding this balding gentleman named Bud Ricketts, who's um, the CEO slash president of the paper mill. Um, and they're, they're kind of uh, bombarding him with these questions. Before we rule in your favor, sir, but do you think that the, the, the Indians are going to rule in our favor? Do you consider this a major victory? Victory, victory. What's all this talk about victory? I mean, did our baseball team play today and did we win? <laughs> I mean, I should know. I coached the darn time, but... Seriously, this has not been a competition we've been in here the last six months. We've been listening to all sides of the issue, and we've been hearing people's needs, desires, and now we've met them all. So right there, we get the introduction uh, of Bud Ricketts played just uh, what what a what a great performance turned in by by Michael Hogan there playing your typical smarmy politician, Um, and he's there and he's kind of like trying to deflect the entire story of the destruction of people's land by dismissing it as nothing more than just a misunderstanding. And the other thing that I really uh, found fascinating by that little um, exchange there was how, you know, he was trying to uh, relate to the common man by throwing out baseball and, you know, saying like, well, I'm a coach. I'm also a coach. So I was like, I'm not all of a bad guy. You know what I mean? So it's just like a, just brilliant. Um, all everything in this film, um, as far as the writing is concerned, is just absolute uh, just gold. So uh, anyway, um, you know we we've seen this kind of scenario um, all too often. You know, you have um, these white uh, white men in, in three piece suits. You know, telling um, all everybody just go back to bed that that they're handling it and that they're on top of it. But what they don't tell you is that behind the scenes. Their way of handling it um, directly benefits their needs and, and their wants. So it's kind of funny how that happens. But listening from the car uh, is Peter, and he gets out and he kind of makes his way over towards Bud. And as he's walking, we see the man in black um, kind of, uh, you know, appear. Uh, you know, he, he's wearing the same, you know, silver pendant, um, you know. Uh, and he's sort of got, uh, you know, he's got the, the leather vest and he's got the jeans on. And then the soundtrack when um, when Arthur, which it turns out to be Arthur, uh, spoilers. <laughs> uh, so when he steps in, the soundtrack turns very ominous and, and cold. And it's just, it, it kind of gives me goosebumps now just talking about it because it's just that awesome. And then Peter, uh, walk, and again, P, uh, Arthur just appears. He doesn't say a word. He just kind of appears out of nowhere, just kind of walks up and then just kind of walks back out like he did uh, at the, uh, the side of the protest. So um, as Peter walks up, though, um, we get this montage of like trees being stripped and cut down and debarked and washed and tumbled and just cut and moved. And Peter just shakes his head with disgust as Ricketts and his personal kind of Mr. Smithers arrogantly kind of climb their way into the car. They start to drive off, but uh, Peter kind of steps out in front of them and blocks the way. (laughs) What are you doing here? Peter, what are you doing? You're not thinking of talking to my client, are you? Peter, that's not something that's going through your mind, is it? Peter, I think Mr. McGuire's a little confused. Our victory, his loss, Peter. We haven't actually met, have we? Mr. McGuire and I are Somewhere going to Somewhere across a crowded court. Aren't we, Mr. McGuire? We're going to meet Bud Ricketts. Filthy industrialist. This is not the time, nor the Where's place. Where's your halo, Mr. McGuire? 
keep it in my briefcase. It was on your road where your machinery is destroying the forest. Stop the construction until I've had a chance to file for an appeal. There's no reason for people to get arrested or hurt. Listen, if I'm not given leave to appeal, slash away. What do you think I'm going to say to this? We're talking three weeks. What do you think I'm going to say? You're going to say no. And then I'm going to appeal to your uh, sense of decency. Sure you are. Fair play? Yes, of course, fair play. Why terrorize people? Careful, McGuire. You'll get more accomplished. I've waited six months to get that road cut. Six months to get to the trees I need to keep this mill at full capacity and keep the town in full employment. Now, what do you think I'm going to say to your cooperating Indians? Well, you know what I'm going to say. So why, in fact, are you here? In fact, perhaps if I was representing a band of cooperating Indians, I'd want to keep up appearances, too. I never begrudge a man that's living, McGuire, so file your appeal and collect your fee, but don't ask me to play your fool, huh? What a smarmy scumbag. <laughs> he acts a little different when he's not in front of the press, doesn't he? So um, he knows, obviously, that he's in the wrong, but he doesn't care one bit. Uh, you know, he even referred to himself as a filthy industrialist. Um, so he's completely self-aware of his own douchebaggery. Uh, but let's talk really quick about the great character actor Michael Hogan. Um, you know, the man has 150 credits on his internet movie database filmography, um, and he plays this one to an absolute T. He is a joy to watch. I mean, he is perfect. He's the guy that, that you just hate <laughs> in this movie. Uh, but then it, it switches, and you kind of feel sorry for him. But uh, I mean, uh, you know, if if you're if you're throwing. Uh, uh, or, or shouting obscenities at your TV screen every time he appears, then, then clearly he's doing his job as an actor. But um, after the confrontation with Ricketts, uh, we find uh, McGuire, and he's drinking alone in like this flea bag motel. And he's on the phone with his secretary, kind of explaining his delay in returning to the office. And again, I love this little quiet scenes. Um, it's because uh, it, it allows you, you know, not only for the character to breathe a little bit, but it also allows the audience a little bit of time to reflect and process everything that has just been seen and heard. Um, it's just a perfectly executed scene, and it starts with about fifteen seconds of just pure silence, and then the camera kind of cuts to a television where we see old filthy industrialist Bud Ricketts on this on this talk show and he's once again kind of spinning the situation and hopefully by this time um, you understand and appreciate the brilliance of this film's pacing for the local people the workers their wives and children and jobs and mortgage payments everything has been up in the air well, some knee-jerk environmentalists from the South, these lawyers, pencil pushers, get a nice big fat contract like this. They do their job, win or lose, they're gone. Uh, they use more paper than anybody. Nine protesters were arrested. So all this ADR dialogue kind of leads us back to the cab of Tom Star Blanket's truck, and he's driving Peter up to Wilf's house. And as I was watching this scene, I can't get over the fact of how much Tom Jackson looks exactly like Branscombe Richmond. And if you forgot who he is, he was in Black Cloud and he's been in Commando. He's been with Chuck Norris. He's been on Star Trek. He's been on like all these different things. Um, it's uncanny. Uh, they both have these chiseled good looks and they both have these just majestic coiled mullets. I just was like, man, that just looks exactly like Branscombe Richmond. But anyway, I digress. Um, after attempting some small talk, um, Peter just 
you know, flat out asked Tom why he wasn't arrested back at the demo site um, along with all the other protesters. And Tom just kind of casually replies, it's because um, he's 6'5 and 300 pounds and no Mountie would ever try to uh, put him in the back of a police cruiser. And I promise you, relatives, he ain't lying. Big, big dude. So the duo pull up to Wilf's cabin and get out of the truck. And they go inside where Peter has to have like this pseudo come to Jesus moment with Wilf about the case. I think uh, we may be beaten on this one, Wilf. Yeah, it's just a long battle. We haven't won yet. An appeal might succeed. No, it won't. One more time, Wilf, you'll lose again. It might be one long battle. Your forests, your rivers, your lakes. One long fight, but I'm sorry, Wilf, you'll lose again. And I don't see any great shining hope at the end of your tunnel. that so much because Wilf literally calls him out like right then and there when he's sort of giving him this big spiel um, about like uh, uh, oh I'm so sorry like you know uh, Wilf sees what he's trying to do is he's not he's trying to gain sympathy for himself (laughs) and Wilf is just like shutting that shit down uh, real quick and so I love that so much but uh, during this entire kind of exchange of dialogue Wilf is like busying himself, like making a pot of tea and he's setting out some crackers. And I love this uh, little touch of realism here because anytime, no matter what, if there is a discussion or a meeting is going to take place in native communities um, or a home even, it's always done around food. Um, Even if it's just something as simple as uh, coffee and saltine crackers. Uh, Wilf's expression also during this uh, uh, exchange, he never flinches. He never, um, you know, uh, he just he just he stays very stoic uh, during the entire exchange. And you can tell he's just sitting back. He's taking it all in and he knows what he's going to say. And even more so, he knows kind of what has to happen despite what anyone thinks. And what's most interesting here is when McGuire gets to the, um, you know, the somebody must pay uh, line of dialogue. It's at that moment in the conversation, Wilf kind of, um, kind of, uh, you know, perks up a little bit, so to speak. And he kind of stops what he's doing and he gives Peter um, his undivided attention. And he recognizes that, um, you know, all the talking, all of the appeals, uh, all of the protest is not working 
and that it's time for some real action. So I once again have to give a huge shout out to the screenwriter here because uh, this entire scene is beautifully tied up uh, with the brilliant line, who do you really feel bad for, us or yourself? I mean, holy holane, what a mic drop. Uh, He asks a very important question, and that is, you know, who who's this really about? (laughs) And just the very fact that Wilf not only recognizes Peter's white guilt and savior complex for the very first time um, that I can think of, he actually acknowledges it. Uh, It's just what a progressive way of thinking for a film, even back in 1991. Because you have to remember, at this time, you know, most of the continent were still on their hands and knees, you know, uh, kind of frolicking around in the dirt, um, acting like a tatanka, and just singing the praises of Kevin Costner. And here's a film that says, you know, F that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, who, who are you really fighting for? Uh, are, are you fighting for us because it's the right thing to do? Or is this more of a pride thing and you're doing it because, uh, um, you, you know, you feel a sense of defeat? So, holy cow, it's, again, it's just, it's, it's really kind of a, a calling out some, some very bold ideas, uh, you know, way back in 1991. So, uh, oof, kudos, kudos, kudos. So the question kind of leaves uh, McGuire a little gobsmacked. And with no immediate answer, there's only one thing left to do, and that's uh, have a, a good old sweat ceremony. So we cut to the scene where we see some men kind of preparing by cleansing everything from um, the hand drum to, to drumsticks to prayer pipes, and they're using uh, either cedar smoke or, or tobacco smoke. I can't really tell. And during this, Wilf at this time is kind of briefing uh, McGuire on the importance uh, of the sweat ceremony. And he tells him basically, you know, that um, this is going to give him insight into what he truly wants. And he also tells him that, you know, no matter what, that he mustn't be afraid of what is revealed to him. And while I think, you know, most of the, uh, you know, native viewers could probably do without this little bit of dialogue, uh, I basically, you know, I assume it's here for for the non-native viewers, uh, you know, just for context. But either way, it's an, it's, a, it's an important line of dialogue because it's going to give some real credence to the vision that McGuire has during the ceremony. And I'm not going to go into specifics of the ceremony itself uh, that's depicted on screen because, uh, full disclosure, it's, it's a pretty accurate representation. And, in fact, I would be uh, – I'd, I'd say it's fair to say – that they had a native consultant on on the set who who knew the ceremony or was familiar with it, um, you know, pretty well. Um, I know uh, for a fact that that M.T. Kelly um, was on set as a consultant, but with all of the the uh, actors, you know, obviously um, there had to be somebody um, there with a lot more familiarity than 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 the director. So um, yeah. With the rock starting to glow red, the prayer starting, the drum beat rhythmically beating, uh, McGuire really starts to feel it. 
his breathing becomes very labored um, as near anxiety sets in. Um, and you really get a sense uh, of his uncomforting demeanor. He's like shifting, he's rocking, he's even kind of panicking a little bit. And Wilf kind of calms him down by telling him to pray. And then the screen fades to black and it dissolves into a close-up of like water evaporating off the rocks. And it's so keen to see that because it looks like these tiny little veins um, or these tiny frail fingers sort of like crawling over the rocks um, where it's kind of cooling and then it just vanishes. And what makes this even more outstanding is, you know, that's a practical effect. I mean, this was done by Mother Earth, baby. I mean, there is no computer generated, you know, CGI bullshit here. So... Next, we see McGuire um, kind of sitting in the lodge, and he's sweating bullets while Wilf continues singing. And uh, he's kind of looking real intensely at Wilf, and his vision's kind of starting to, to get blurry. And then suddenly, Wilf is transformed into the man with the silver necklace, which finally is revealed to be Graham Greene, a.k.a. Arthur. And he's trying to shake off the vision of the man. Um, you know, the water on the rocks kind of kind of cuts back to, to to the water on the rocks again. But this time, um, the it turns like this. You know, it turns to blood, and it's sort of foreshadowing the violence and the bloodshed that's you know laying ahead. And the camera does this little wicked ass, uh, you know, three sixty around Graham Greene, uh, pulling in tight on his face. And as he does. He kind of slowly and menacingly like looks directly into the camera and he just has this really evil smile with the corners of his mouth. And it's just it's just pure coldness. And we cut back to Peter's face and he's still writhing in agony. And then the camera kind of quick zooms out and it reveals that um, Peter is now nude and he's among like this, this smoldering forest. And it's just another really well-constructed scene. Okay, so I put up a poll earlier in the week on my Instagram story kind of asking um, about the idea of splitting some of these longer episodes up into to two parts. And the response I got was an overwhelming yes. Uh, sorry, Russell. Uh, that you guys liked the idea uh, of splitting the episodes up into to, you know, much easier to digest bits. So this is a great place to stop, and it's going to give you guys who have not seen this film an opportunity to check it out. It is available on YouTube, and as far as I know right now, um, other than the Severin box set, this is the only way that you can view this film. It is definitely worth your time, and then, um, you know, then meet me back here in about two weeks. While you're waiting, don't forget to follow us over on Instagram. That is Skoden Cinema. Um, you can follow us on Facebook. Again, that's Skoden Cinema. And there's two groups. There's a public group and there is a private group. Uh, don't forget to share and like this podcast. Um, if, if you like what you're here, if you like what you hear. And don't forget to leave a review, uh, a five-star review if you can. That'd be awesome. It kind of helps people uh, find the podcast. So uh, I appreciate you guys listening. And I'm looking forward to bringing you part two in about two weeks. Maro. Sweet Mother Earth has woken today. The leaves are stirring around her where she lay. Let them.